the Yale University Press podcast. My name is George Miller, and in this programme, I'm talking to Christopher Lloyd about the importance of drawing in the art of Pablo Picasso. Line is the basis of Picasso, whether it's painting, sculpture, drawing, everything comes down to line. And what he could do with line, doodling, was what bewitched people, literally. He could do it under the table, blind. He could do it in the ground, in the sand. He could do it with anything, on anything. It's that multiplicity, that multivalency about drawing. That's why it's so fundamental, the backbone to his art. Christopher Lloyd worked in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford from 1968 until 1988, when he became surveyor of the Queen's pictures in the British Royal Collection, a post he held until 2005. His publications include books on the drawings of Degas and Cézanne. Christopher's new book is a beautifully illustrated exploration of the vital role of drawing in Picasso's artistic career. In fact, seeing the variety of work represented in the book, drawing seems almost too narrow a term for the range of techniques, media and styles that Picasso mastered, transformed and in some cases invented. Picasso's contemporary the photographer and writer Brassai said, If I had a choice among all the work he has done, I would take the drawings without hesitation. It's there, I think, that his genius appears most directly. And Christopher writes on his opening page, Rare indeed are those artists whose drawings are of more than a passing significance in any estimation of their contribution to the history of art. But the name of Pablo Picasso is assuredly among them. So, I asked, when it comes to his drawings, is Picasso up there with the greatest? Well, I do put him up there with the greats. I I think the Irv, and we're talking about roughly 19,000 drawings and about 174 sketchbooks altogether, I think. It's a huge outpouring, and that's divorced from anything else in in the Irv, just the drawn Irv. There were other works on paper being the prints, of course, I think that the totality of that is equal to, let us say, Leonardo, Dürer, Rembrandt, Rubens. I believe that implicitly, and I think uh, he sees himself as their successor. The humanity in his drawings, the emotional overlay in it all, is quite equal to those very great artists. Picasso once asserted that he had never done children's drawings. Never, he claimed, even when I was very small. Was this, I asked, an example of Picasso's myth-making, or had he really sprung forth, fully formed as an artist? He he didn't uh, start off a prodigy, although the family projected a myth after he was established that that he was some kind of prodigy. We can see from the multitude of drawings, early drawings, that he went through all the stages of academic training, beginning at Malaga and then in Corona and then in Barcelona. And he becomes more liberated when he goes to France. But he went through the academic system. And one of the most 
interesting aspects of his draftsmanship, his early draftsmanship, is his ability to come to terms very quickly with that academic tradition. He didn't bypass it. He actually uh, took it on board very rapidly, became very proficient and skillful in it, but at the same time saw it as a way to escape. He benefited from academic discipline, but in a way to invert it and to move it on in his own way. So he, in a way, was using it like a trapeze artist. It was something that he could bounce off, but he always respected it. That's the most important thing. He, he insisted on the importance of drawing as a discipline, and that's why he actually continued to draw throughout his life. But the early drawings are very, very good. There is some juvenilia, and a juvenilia of the cutouts too, but the drawings themselves are extraordinarily convincing exercises in how to draw the nude, for example. But very quickly apparent on the page, there are doodles which are caricatural. So you can see how he's blending the two. He's seeing the importance of learning how to draw properly, but then going on to finding ways out of it to move it along, to move tradition along. And fortunately, in the academic system at the time, there was a lot of discussion about whether this was the right way to draw. It had been all right for the 17th century and the 18th century, and indeed for most of the 19th century. But by the end of the 19th century, reforms were necessary. And Picasso comes on board at that very moment when the reforms are beginning to sweep through the academic uh, system. So it wasn't quite as constricting as one makes it out, but he was incredibly good at that academic drawing. And it is the backbone of his work, which people looking at later Picasso, or, or without knowledge of this early work, can easily misunderstand the importance of what that academic training was for him as, as, as an artist. And drawing itself as a form was being taken more seriously. I think, I think Picasso has his first exhibition of drawings, was it 1919? In previous centuries, drawing had simply been subservient to painting. It had mainly been a preparatory art. But Picasso comes along at, a, I guess, at a propitious time for drawing because it is beginning to be taken more seriously and different media are available which yes. weren't available to other artists. So can you, can you say something about that? What, what was sort of available to him to make a drawing and, and the status of drawings? Yes, that's absolutely true. The tradition from the Renaissance onwards was that drawing was a preparatory exercise moving towards a finished painting or, or, or sculpture. And the drawings were literally just stored away in the studio or deposited on the floor or even thrown away. Certain drawings were actually kept because they were presentation drawings or portrait drawings. But on the whole, it was a preparatory exercise. This begins to change in the second half of the 19th uh, century, particularly in France with the, uh, the arrival of Impressionism. And it was in France that the academic tradition had had its stronghold, uh, stranglehold, I should say, since the 17th century. So that with the impressions beginning to look at life around them and life in flux and in movement, painting became a less convincing way of doing this. And drawing comes alongside painting so that painting is not the only way now. Drawing can do it as well. Now, this coincided with not so much emphasis on pencil and accuracy and uh, fine paper and everything, but a much more liberal approach to the use of 
of materials and instruments. So the softer media, chalks, charcoals, uh, with the brush, gouache, tempera, particularly pastel, became more open for artists to use, more available, for one thing, in, in commercial packages and things like that. And also artists weren't afraid to use different supports. Their hands wandered from paper onto cardboard, or onto canvas, on directly onto canvas, and onto tracing paper and things. So there was a feeling of, of breaking out of, of liberalism in drawing. And that is literally the breakthrough from the 1860s through to the end of the century. Drawings were more readily exhibited alongside paintings. They were mounted, they were framed, so they looked like paintings, so that you now have an autonomy of drawing. It is not just a separate exercise from painting. They were both equal in status. And dealers, of course, relish this because the production was much quicker. And also they were more saleable in many respects. So everybody was pleased. But it, when Picasso takes this in Barcelona is where he really breaks out with his drawings because his first exhibition in the Café de Cat's Arts was a series of portraits. And they were literally just pinned to the wall. And he did them in what we call mixed media. They were charcoal and chalk, but with watercolour and touches of gouache. But they were literally just pinned to the wall, over a hundred of them, it's thought. And some sold and some didn't. The exhibition in 1919 was by Paul Rosenberg and was, uh, for the first time, major exhibition of Picasso's drawings. But by then, he was well-established. After all, Cubism was 1906-8, to and that had been the great breakthrough in modern art. Next, I asked Christopher about drawing's exploratory role in Picasso's development of Cubism. It's a severe intellectual exercise of how you look at every, around at, at an object in the round, but how do you put that down in, in, in two dimensions? Because by introducing what's called the fourth dimension time, looking at the back of something as well as the front and the sides, and putting all that down was an extremely complex matter. If you try to work that out, it's rather like Einstein. It's an incredibly complex matter to find the right way. And thus Cubism goes through these various phases ending with my favourite, which is, well, the papier collet was a, a very uh, decisive moment because instead of just using chalk and pencil and, and colour and watercolour and everything, suddenly to come and stick a piece of paper or a ticket or a programme or a menu as part of the composition gave drawing another extra element. It was a prodigiously intellectual moment to think of drawing in this three-dimensional way. And in fact, the reason I think why Cubism lasted such a short time was essentially that it was so difficult to do, to sustain that level of intellectual achievement, that ludic quality of deceiving the eye, of drawing the viewer in to the picture, the complexities of it, uh, but not putting them off totally. And Picasso was terrified that his Cubist drawings would be rather abstract and would seem to be just for those in the know and not have a, a wider a, a appeal. He was terrified of that. And in fact, the reaction against it is very much 
comes in the next decade, and we're here now into the decade of of the Ballet Russe and uh, 1917 onwards and into the 20s, when after the Ballet Russe and Diaghilev and dancing, he goes into what's called the neoclassical phase, where again you get the pure line coming back. Picasso is very chameleon. He's very gymnastic in all of this. He, He goes into one style and he comes out, explores it thoroughly, solves it more or less, adds it to his armory, and then goes on and does something else. He never wanted to be trapped in one uh, particular style, but helped each style develop new styles in turn. That's why he is the complete artist in all the disciplines of art. You really preempted my next question, because I was, I, I was looking through the book, I was wondering about that. What is it that makes it cohere? Because, as you say, he explores all sorts of different stylistic approaches, but he doesn't entirely abandon them. So you see some things coming back or being modified or being combined with something, and you, you somehow feel that it's all Picasso. It's not, you, you don't think of it as, oh, that's Picasso going down a blind alley and he had to retreat and go. You somehow feel it's all being part, you know, incorporated into what he is as an artist. So I guess the, the, the easy answer would be his genius. But I want, I want you to say a little bit about what is it, what is it that makes it somehow cohere? Well, he was not a man who ever theorized. I mean, he said some remarkable things about art and artists, usually recorded by other people. I mean, there is no theoretical publication by Picasso. So a lot is written about Picasso and statements he made are recorded, but there was no body of work you could call a theoretical summary of his ambitions or his purposes as an artist. It's the creative impulse that comes through all the time. He never wanted to stand still. He never did stand still. He felt that if he was a prisoner of anything, he immediately wanted to, to break out of it. And I think that is the... Chameleon is too much of a, uh, too much a light word. He didn't want to be a prisoner. He was always breaking the chains. I think art historians can look at the oeuvre as a whole and see not just leitmotifs as regards subject matter, but also moments when the style does have a coherence to it. I referred just now to how uh, line is so very important. Line has different meanings at different stages, but it's still a line, and it can meander, and it can be reinforced, and it can be scrubbed out, but it's still the basis of the art, the line. And there is this this gymnastic sense. Or, if you like, a uh, comparison that's very relevant for Picasso is the bullfighting. It's as though he's drawing the bull in, tossing the cape. He's very much a matador. Did you discover new things about him as a result of, of looking at this uh, through this particular lens, either about his, his drawing specifically or, or Picasso as an artist? Yes, I think Picasso is an artist of such originality and such a volume of work that he created that uh, one sees things in him, new things in him all the time when you go back to him. That just may be the creative impulse, but we have to remember also that he was a man who was omniscient in his passions, his feelings, his eye has an omniscience that most people don't have. And an omnivorousness too. Yes. He's compulsive. He's impulsive and then he's compulsive. So a lot of the themes that he adopts in his work are followed through to the very end. And then somehow he will somersault his way out of it into something else. Picasso is ultimately a colossus. His great importance, I think, is that he summarizes everything that's gone before in art. 
And yet, in doing that, he's a signpost to the future. He resets the levels of art, so to speak. And this is particularly true in the great movements that he's associated with, what comes out of Les Demoiselles d'Avignon ultimately is Cubism. And Cubism makes us look at the world in a totally different way. And after all, Cubism was fairly early in his career. So these great divergences into different styles was not a sign, I, I think, of him drying up, his, his creativity drying up, or his being eclectic. Far from it. When he does neoclassicism, it's neoclassicism like nobody else and like no other form of neoclassicism. It is Picasso's neoclassicism. I mean, that's what's so very striking about those wonderful drawings of Stravinsky and Satie and Diaghilev uh, and of Olga Kokolova, his wife, that, that he, he does. There is... Um, this sense of laissez-faire about absolutely everything in the earth, uh, that he will go in any direction. But at the same time, although he would hotly deny it, I think there is a logical development in the way in which he, he works through these different styles. And it ends, of course, with this great controversy about is late Picasso just something that he was airily painting or sculpting for the sake of an income rather than... I don't think that's true. I think he went on being creative to the end. With regards to art, he's a total anarchist. He's always trying to blow everything up. And uh, in a way, what's interesting is that how everything comes down having blown it up is one of the keys to Picasso because he then rebuilds it. It's like a child, in a way, playing with Lego and you destroy it and then you rebuild, but you rebuild in a totally different way. Was there nonetheless in his later years a fear in him that he may have opened up new paths to other artists but rather been been trampled in the stampede to to the future? There is that feeling, particularly in the 60s, indeed in the 50s, when New York took over from Paris and abstract expressionism starts to rule the roost. Yes, I think Picasso felt left out. And what's fascinating about that is having broken the boundaries and shown the way, he felt he was having to live amongst the ruins of his own work. And I think that's why, another reason why, he he continued to, to work right up to the very end and look at new forms. The late work is not just paintings and sculpture, it's printmaking par excellence, and it's pottery, and they're wonderful. The way the pots are illustrated and um, painted pottery is a superb aspect of his oeuvre, and that, again, is the totality, this ability to pick up anything, particularly in the sculpture, items just left around, and form them into a shape that nobody else had actually recognised or knew how to fit together in a way. The saddle and the handlebars is the most famous example of that. Objet trouvé, but that is the, the genius of, of the man. But I think, in a way, he didn't give up when he saw New York and America, after all, he himself had stormed America in, in one way through his dealer uh, and his sales there and his exhibitions there, very much so. But he, I think that's what sent him back into the studio. And the studio was the Locus Classicus of his last years, guarded by Jacqueline Rock, his second wife. It was in the studio that he had this sense of continuing his, his mission in a more personal way. The world would be interested in what comes out of the studio, of course. But he takes on those themes that relate back 
to the early years of academic discipline because there is a pantheon of artists that he particularly interested in, the French tradition of Poussin and de la Tour in a realistic sense, and then Manet, and also artists like Rembrandt. We have to remember that Picasso was living in an age when art history had begun as a discipline, that there were a huge number of publications out there that he could have access to and did have access to. There was a lot of discussion. There were He used slides on his studio wall. So all those electronic devices were something he could use so that actually his sources were multiplying. And he was able to use all those sources to great effect. And then, in a sense, I suppose, as all great people, at the end of their lives, they tried to fit themselves into this pantheon. And who's up there but Degas? And ultimately Rembrandt, of course. And in those late works, in the prints and the drawings, uh, you get that uh, wonderful sense of Picasso communing with the great names of the past, bringing them forward. It's slightly unfair to say he's seeming, seeing himself in the same pantheon. I think he is. I think he, he is the equal of them. He regards himself as the equal of them. And then the indigenous Spanishness is there because he latches onto Velazquez. Velazquez was, of course, alongside Degas and, and, and Manet and, and, and Poussin and Rembrandt, the great uh, artist of the past with whom he would wish to commune after his death, and presumably must be communing now. Like uh, it was Degas said that um, he wanted to meet Titian, and he sure Titian would be holding the gondola ready for him to step into. I'm sure Picasso is having lunch with all these people now. I was talking to Christopher Lloyd about Picasso and the Art of Drawing, which is available now in hardback. It's distributed by Yale University Press for Modern Art Press. You can find out more about the book on both presses' websites. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.